So what I want to explore with us tonight is the teaching on the two truths, kind of two views or lenses through which we can view our experience of being human. And uh, one of the lenses or truths is the personal view, the personal truth, and the other is the universal view or the universal truth. So to introduce that, I would rather talk first, uh, tell a story about how this uh, became illuminated for somebody on a very practical level in daily life practice, because it's it's actually a technical teaching at its source. But what I'm finding is that it's an incredibly user-friendly teaching to translate into a practice to live a life every moment. So here's the story. I was exploring this teaching with a different community earlier this spring, and somebody came up to me at the end of the teaching, and they said, I'm not sure I get this teaching of the two truths, of the personal and the universal, but something happened to me today. Let me tell you and and see if I've got this right. So she woke up in the morning. This group was on a Monday night, so it was a Monday morning, beginning of a work week, and she worked a Monday to Friday job. Uh, Got up was in a bit of a hurry, the way we sometimes are, made the coffee. She said coffee is a very important part of her morning routine. Put the coffee on the table, uh, got the milk or the cream, started to pour the milk or the cream into the coffee, and lo and behold, it spills all over the table. I think there was a tablecloth involved, but I'm not completely sure about that point. And running late, half awake, cream all over the table, uh, you know, coffee isn't right anymore. And she got really frustrated. She started blaming the spigot on the cream. How could they make this so, in, you know, ineptly that it would spill? And she turned it around and started blaming herself. How could I be so inept to spill this coffee? It became what I call the main event. Okay, this was a main event moment. Ah, I spilled the cream. You know, what do I do now? I'm going to be late for work. My whole day. And you see how far you could take it. Uh, but because she's an insight meditation practitioner, in the midst of that madness, she had a moment of clarity. And that moment of clarity came in the form of a wisdom adage that uh, has been passed down in this culture generation by generation. And that adage was a thought, oh, there's no use crying over spilt milk. (laughs) So as she had that moment of clarity, there's no use crying over spilt milk, she realized, oh, you know, it's not about the milk container. It's not about my self-judgment. It's not about if I'm late or not. Like, there's a whole world going on here. And the work will get done, and I'll get there, and it'll get cleaned up, and I could offer myself some compassion, and it's okay. There's a wider process level to what was going on. So she told me this story, and then she said, well, did I get it? You know, the personal truth and the universal truth? I said, I think you got it. And so I've been sharing that story. Um, Because it's just very how we live these teachings versus how we intellectually learn these teachings. We need to do both. We don't have an intellectual understanding, then we can't live them. Uh, so that's why we explore them in a modality like this, and then we live them, and then we come back and share with each other. This is how I experience the two truths. So at the end of our time, we'll see if people have their own uh, stories or, or questions about how you experience these two truths. Let's talk a little bit more about the definition, the formal definition of the two truths. And to do that, we have to talk a bit about language. Language is really important to me uh, because I'm aware that since the time of the Buddha, um, there's been this ongoing exploration of what language sings to our hearts, what words bring the truth home in our being. And for each one of us, there are different words. So the Buddha was uh, very passionate about encouraging people to teach in the vernacular of the people, to find the language that works for each of us to support awakening and wisdom. So there's a lot of different words we could use for these two truths. A more formal English translation of the word that I'm calling the personal truth is actually the relative truth. 
She may have heard that the relative truth and then the converse would be the absolute truth. It's a more formal English translation. Uh, More English words for the personal view. Uh, The superficial truth. The conventional truth. The truth of diversity. Uh, These are actually all interpretations of this uh, personal truth. And then some uh, different words for the universal truth or the absolute truth, the deepest truth, the truth truth of unity, of unity. So you can choose the words that work for you. Uh, These days I'm preferring myself to use the personal truth and the universal truth because as I talk to people and as I do my own practice, uh, it just seems the most accessible. It means that when I spill the milk, I can ask myself, oh, is it all about me? Am I taking it personally? Have I just created a main event? And I can answer those questions and then realize, oh, how can I bring in the universal nature of this? Another way of looking at it would be uh, content and process. You know, the content is, ah, it's personal. It's all about me and you and how it relates to me and you. Uh, and then the process level, oh yeah, everybody's walking around the hero of their own life story. And that's the universal level. So what are they about? A personal truth. Uh, and this is a, a definition actually from the ninth Karmapa in the Tibetan tradition. And interestingly, this teaching has roots, uh, for those of you that are interested in this, both in the Mahayana tradition and also the Theravadan tradition. So I'll weave those two together as well. So this is from the ninth Karmapa. Uh, many hundreds of years ago right now, we're at the 17th Karmapa, for those who are interested in how the Tibetan lineage of teachers manifests over time. He says, Whatever ordinary people consider to be solid and real whether it's ourselves or objects, is the personal truth. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. It's just whatever we consider to be solid and real. Solid meaning we've just frozen the law of impermanence, because even on a scientific level, everything's changing. Uh, And real meaning, ah, I believe this to be completely true. No space for any other view. And then the universal truth, whatever ordinary people consider to be real, is actually empty or void of a solid, separate, inherent existence. It's only an appearance. So what it means is that everything that we're taking to be solid and real appears and disappears. Why is that important? Because then we don't have to take ourselves quite so seriously And we don't have to take the world quite so seriously. What happens when we loosen our grip on that seriousness, on that concretizing, it must be this way, is then we can have a more appropriate, compassionate response to conditions as they are. So it's not passive at all. It's wise. Just looking at this on a very simple, practical level, We'll we'll work with objects for a minute. So this is an easy thing. I've got my notes here. Just a piece of paper. It's got some ink on it. Nothing special. So I take an object. It's a piece of paper. There's two ways uh, that we could generally relate to this object. Okay. The first way is more of a scientific way, and it's breaking it down. We can break it down and say, okay, well, you know, there's the tree, the water that fed the tree, so we've got, you know, the different... Uh, components of that, whatever the ink was made of, and just break it down, break it down, break it down. If we take ourself that way, let's say, uh, oh, what's happening in my experience right now? Just any uh, random moment of experience. Hmm, uh, there's a, you know, I'm just making one up. There's a, there's a tick in my cheek, and my heart's racing, and there's sweat, and there's all these racing thoughts, and, oh, these are the components breaking it down, a moment of fear. So we break it down. We're very good at that in our inside meditation practice. This inquiry, you know, this curiosity, this investigation to break down what appears to be solid and separate experience into its component parts. You know, so that then we know, oh, 
when my heart races and there's sweat and there's these kind of thoughts, maybe it's fear. So we can go either way. We can start with the fear, we can start with the components. So that's only the first way. The second way is to connect it with everything. Okay? So one of the masters of connecting this piece of paper with everything, um, some of us probably know, is the, the Zen master, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. And we often use Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching of seeing everything in a piece of paper as an example for this, but we don't so often, it seems like these days, actually bring in his words. So I'm going to bring in his teaching, really how he transmitted this and articulated it so deeply that it's actually part of what we carry in our community today as a collective understanding or knowledge. He says, if you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, trees cannot grow. And without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. If the cloud is not here, the sheet of paper cannot be here either. So we can say that the cloud and the paper inter-are. Inter-being is a word that is not in the dictionary yet. But if we combine the prefix inter with the verb to be, we have a new verb, inter-be. Without the cloud, a sheet of paper, and if we bring them together, they inter-are. And then he says further, if we look even more deeply, we can see that we are in this piece of paper too. Nothing separate, right? It's not difficult to see because when we look at this sheet of paper, the sheet of paper is part of our perception. Your mind is in here and my mind is in here also. So we can say that everything is in here in this sheet of paper. You cannot point out one thing that is not here. Time, space, the earth, the rain, the minerals in the soil, the sunshine, the cloud, the river, the heat, everything coexists in this sheet of paper. That is why I think that the word interbe should be in the dictionary. To be is to interbe. You cannot just be by yourself alone. You have to interbe with every other thing. This sheet of paper is because everything else is. So it's a beautiful teaching. And it's interesting to look at this again in terms of uh, language form and function because I think about for many years I, I worked with children and with youth and I think about how we learn language. So in the English language and in cultures where English language is the primary language, we would tend to, when somebody's, you know, yay high, a little toddler just learning the language, uh, we would hold up the piece of paper, and we would point to it, and we'd say, paper, paper. And the little kid would look at it and go, paper. And we'd say, good, good. You know, how many of us have done this with cousins and children and grandchildren and children that we work with, because many of us know in this community work with children. That's how we learn it. In In other cultures, in different languages on this planet, we would actually hold up this piece of paper and say something functional about it. Like we might hold this and we would say, holding, holding. And the child would say, holding, holding. Why is this important? Because the way we learn language has a lot to do with how we perceive the world. If we've been trained to perceive in terms of nouns or objects, then that's the primary way that we perceive the world. If we've been trained to develop perception in terms of process, that's the primary way we see the world. So it's bigger than uh, the way that we may have been culturated. I was reflecting on the fact that recently a friend came to visit me in Nevada City, and um, he was going to bring his teenage son with him. And I hadn't seen his teenage son since his teenage son was in elementary school. So I was very excited uh, to see this kid. And then I realized, I don't know this kid. I have a memory of this kid when he was nine years old, and I'd known him when he was quite young. And then my experience of this child stops at age nine. And so as we were writing emails, sending directions, et cetera, et cetera, one of the emails I sent is, I can't wait to see 
and to meet the teenage manifestation of your son. You know? Because I realized I'm meeting somebody new. What if we went home tonight to whoever we live with or went into work tomorrow to whoever we relate with and actually had that kind of relationship and met somebody new? Not who I think you are, but just letting you be and drinking that in. So I think about this on a, you know, I look forward to meeting the teenage manifestation of your son, and then I reflect on, well, what manifestations do I primarily identify with at this time? So I I pose that question to us, so that it's not just my voice, and I'll repeat back what you say so that um, it catches on the mic. But where are the primary places that you kind of have a manifestation of self that feel, you know, real, that are important in your life on a functional level? Just call out a few. It's not a trick question, okay? Call out a few. Yeah, the self that's in the bed. Yeah, the working self. The mother. Yeah, with the with the kittens, the 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 mother of the kittens. Somebody else there. Oh yeah, the the ego self. Yeah, I'm manifesting as it. Yeah. Anybody else? Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. Yeah, the one who digs in the dirt. And there's nothing wrong with any of these. We need these functionally. Otherwise, somebody else is going to have to take care of those kittens because I forgot that I, you know, I have this sense of self that takes care of the kittens. Who's going to take care of them? Who's going to take care of the children? But the question is, can I hold it lightly so that then I can engage fresh in each moment instead of thinking, I know my cats, I know my kids, I know how it's going to go down at work. And the reason it becomes problematic is that because of conditions things can go down exactly the same way repeatedly and they verify this sense of, oh, I know how it is. It is solid. It is separate. And it it feeds our confusion. It's not our fault. Uh, There's a lot of feeding factors to our confusion about this. So this is again from the ninth Karmapa. He says, the two truths are neither the same nor different. If they were the same, all would see ultimate reality. But if they were different, none would be able to see it. Okay, so that, that quote is really a reflection quote. I'll say it again. It's for our reflection. I've been reflecting on it for months, and it keeps illuminating more and more for me. The two truths are neither the same nor different. If they were the same, everyone would see ultimate reality. And if they were different, no one would be able to see it. So it's the spirit of form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Or maybe a a more user-friendly way to say that would be form contains emptiness, and emptiness uh, merges with form. Sometimes I think it's the language that catches us up. We know this. We all know this. And the interesting point is that the transformation of awakening with this teaching is actually from the side of the perceiver, not the side of the perceived. This piece of paper, impermanence and decomposition aside, is as it is. The transformation is from the side of the one who perceives the paper. The paper is just in its natural state. What does that mean? It means that we can have the same family, the same work, the same politics, the same everything, and we can make a transformation from the side of the perceiver. Again, not in a passive way, but in an engaged way. When our confusion starts to lift and we see more clearly, we have so much more energy to engage, to act, to respond. Confusion is confusing. It's deadening. It creates a numbness, uh, among other things. So we're lifting the veil. That's what we're doing in this practice. We're lifting the veil. So as I've been reflecting on this teaching, I've been going at it from various aspects because I know we all learn differently. 
So some people learn through stories, some people learn more through looking at language. Others of us learn very deeply from metaphor. So I've developed a couple metaphors for these two truths. The first metaphor is uh, the metaphor of wearing bifocals. Okay. So when you wear bifocals and you're reading the page, that's the personal view. It's the up-close personal view. The whole world becomes the writing on the page, and you know, it's the metaphor for the personal view. Then we look up, and the whole world is there. Everything, all of you, this beautiful space, the whole world is there. That's the universal view. That's actually how we live our lives. We move back and forth from, oh, it's all about me, my family, my troubles, my dreams. And then we look up, and there's the world passing by in those tin cans we call cars and walking down the street and on the screens. And it's the world. It's the universal. It's not my pain. It's our pain. It's the pain. So recently when I gave this metaphor, somebody came up to me at the end, and she smirked at me. And she said, I have progressive lenses. (laughs) Now, progressive lenses mean, and I thought that was great. I thought that's a better metaphor than bifocals, actually, because that's the mature view of the two views. The immature view of the two views is I'm looking at, this, at the print and I'm looking at the world and it's back and forth and back and forth. Progressive lenses mean that as you move your eyes around, everything meets it. It means that the transformation from the side of the perceiver is in some level of maturity. And so then we can look at the personal level of taking care of the body and taking care of our families and very personal. And then we start to look up and realize, ah, then there's the next uh, circle of our Dharma communities, of our work communities, of, of all the different kind of wider circles. And then we look all the way up and go, ah, oh, the world, we're all in this together. So, ah, perfect, progressive lenses. That's the first metaphor. The second metaphor comes from the meditation instructions themselves. So often when I'm guiding uh, meditation instructions, especially beginning meditation instructions, I'll talk about this metaphor of foreground and background. And I talk about it to kind of clear up some of the confusion that happens for us sometimes when we're new, that the breath is the point of meditation. Like, it's all about being with the breath. If I'm not with the breath, I'm not doing it right, and there's something special about this breath. We're not trying, of course, to become breathing experts. We were already breathing. But what we're doing is we're inviting the natural experience of the breath that was already happening into the foreground of attention, which naturally then allows the rest of our human experience to fall into the background of attention. And then, as we proceed in our meditation path, and I was talking about the art of meditation and the meditation instructions, we can see oh, that pain in the shoulder just forced itself into the foreground of attention. How am I going to meet this moment of experience? And then the breath is in the background. And then we have to make a choice. Do I want to just kind of make a mental note of the fact that there is strong sensation in the shoulder and gently invite the breath back to the foreground of attention? Or do I want to keep that pain in the shoulder in the foreground of attention explore that aspect more deeply? And that, is, that process is an art. You know, we can suggest it, but we each do it our own way. It's a very intimate experience, actually. The two truths work the same way. So the way that I work with them in daily life practice is I'll just notice when events are happening. Ah, is the personal truth in the foreground or is the universal truth in the foreground? And whichever one's in the foreground, I just bring the other one up so that there's some balance because I'm not trying to create a hierarchy of you know, the universal truth is better than the personal truth or you know I have to stay focused on the personal truth because then something bad might happen if I get that big and I want to bring them together create some balance so I'll say ah there's a main event it's all about me where's the universal aspect oh right now I'm really upset and frightened how many people in my community right now I've also been upset and frightened today. How many in the world? And then the heart opens and realizes this is us. 
It feels like it's all about me, and it's also all about us. This is so simple, but it brings in that wisdom, compassion aspect that we're looking to cultivate um, to live the spiritual path. So that's the second metaphor. And I just want to talk a little bit about specifically how these two truths are expressed through the Theravadan tradition or the tradition coming from the forests of Thailand. Uh, And that's one of the main traditions I've been trained in, many teachers through the Thai forest tradition. My main teacher from Thailand talks about it like this. He says, there's this progression of the path and practice. I'll I'll say the Pali words first because that was actually how I was trained, uh, learning the Pali before the English, which maybe is a little bit backwards, but that was how I was trained. So it starts with sati, and then mahasati, and then panya, and then panya vimuti. So what does this mean? Sati is the Pali word, the old language word for mindfulness. So we start with mindfulness, and it's mindfulness of objects. So it's very much about content. Uh, It's more personal at that level. Like me and what I'm aware of, mindful of this object. How many objects can I keep track of? Then as practice progresses, it moves into mahasati. And that's great mindfulness. And what that does is it brings the awareness aspect into the foreground of experience. So we're starting to move into the universal. Yes, there's objects of human experience, and then there's the awareness that holds it, that's in relationship with it, uh, and it's moving into the universal. It's larger than just me and what I'm seeing and hearing and tasting, etc., etc. Out of that great awareness of Mahasati, and what starts to get developed are the wisdom aspects, the fact that everything's changing on a direct experience level, uh, the fact that when we hold on it hurts, you know, and the fact that it's actually a process happening to a system. So it's moving further into the universal level. And then Panya Vimuti is the liberating insight. That as we develop these, these cultivations more and more and more, we start to get free, we start to wake up in ordinary and extraordinary ways. So it's a progression. The truth of the matter is, is that we need mindfulness of objects and we need mindfulness of awareness. Sometimes it's called mindfulness of emptiness. Again, empty of what? Empty of the misbelief of a solid, separate self. It doesn't mean vacant. It just means free of confusion. So we need mindfulness of objects and we need mindfulness of emptiness. If we think that mindfulness of objects is it, we get obsessed with tracking experience. If I can only get every breath, every sound, everything that's going on, then I'll be okay. We can get a little obsessive about it. If we think, oh, mindfulness of emptiness is it, uh, we can actually lose the personal level of the basic integrity that this practice is founded on. Say, oh, it's all empty. I can do whatever I want. You know, and and in our communities, there's been a lot of stuckness and caughtness in that. You know, we've been impacted by both ends of the kind of confusion on these. So we need both. We need them together. So I thought I'd bring in a teaching from the Thai forest tradition uh, that speaks directly to this. And this is from um, Ajahn Fuang. And it's translated by Tan Jeff, uh, who was his student. You might want to just hold this as a meditation or a reflection in and of itself because it's actually meditation instructions uh, to one of his students who had reached kind of an impasse in her meditation. She wasn't sure how to proceed And she was getting caught in this thing about objects and awareness and how to relate to the personal kind of obvious view and then that larger view. This is what he said. Once the mind is firmly established in the breath, you then try to separate the mind from its object. Separate the mind from the breath itself. Focus on this. The breath is an element, part of the wind element. Awareness of the breath is something else. So you've got two things that have come together. Now, when you can separate them, 
through realizing the breath's true nature is an element, the mind can stand on its own. After all, the breath isn't you, and you aren't the breath. When you can separate things in this way, the mind gains power. It is set loose from the breath, and it is wise to the breath's every aspect. When mindfulness is full, it is wise to all aspects of the breath and can separate itself from them. So it's this piece about breaking apart and coming together, looking at the component pieces and then seeing the wholeness. And if we bring that back to the personalness of this body and this heart and this life story here, it becomes so rich. It's not just some technical meditation instruction. You know, this is our life. How are we going to live it? So I've been kind of looking for and exploring uh, examples or role models of this in our worldwide community. Who really is able to hold this kind of balance of these two truths and and live them in a full and mature way? And I've been enjoying actually looking outside of the Buddhist tradition for examples because what I see is this wisdom is universal. Buddhism doesn't have the copyright on this. It just articulates it in a beautiful way. This is a human journey. So recently, I had the opportunity to watch an interview um, with the 2011 Nobel Peace Prize winners. And the winners of the 2011 Nobel Peace Prize were three women. Uh, And they were given that prize for uh, work in their countries on behalf of women. And the one that I was particularly touched by uh, is the president of Liberia, and her name is Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. And she was talking about her country and being the president of her country as a woman with the religious backdrop of that country and and just the different conditions. And she described uh, Liberia as a young democracy, as a democracy that is young yet growing uh, and, and healthy in its youth. And she talked a lot about the work that has been recently happening in that country, about increasing mandatory education for young women. It used to be that young women in Liberia uh, only were able to be educated through elementary school. Now they're moving it into middle school uh, and junior high, talking about the strides that women were making in starting their own small businesses with their crafts and the impact that that was actually having on the country's economy in small ways but in growing ways. Uh, And just the impact of the growth of democracy uh, in that country. And so it was a very personal story, which is why I'm sharing it. It was a personal story of a country and the growth of this country and the girls in the schools and the women starting their businesses. And she's telling these very personal stories. And at the end of her share, what she said, uh, I think it was in response to to a question that was asked by the facilitator. She said, change is on course. I think the question was, How do you think it's going? Aren't you concerned about some of the areas that are not growing as rapidly as we might like? And she said, change is on course. That's the personal view of a country's story and the individuals in the country's story and the universal view of it's not as I might like in this moment, but in the wider sense, I see an arc of process and change is on course. I have my eye on the universal ball. Very powerful. So I always enjoy looking for role models in unusual places for these teachings. And you know, maybe it's something that uh, inspires you and keeps you going in your practice as well. So I just want to end with uh, two quotes. And one is a quote from Ajahn Mun, who is one of the elders uh, of, of, of late generation back in the Thai forest tradition, uh, no longer living. The other one's from Tara Brock, uh, who is the senior teacher uh, in Insight Washington, D.C., uh, just a wonderful woman teacher of our time, uh, not monastic, to just see um, two different kind of expressions of these views. Let's start with Ajahn Mun. 
So he says, There is a clear distinction between consciousness itself and the transient states that arise within it. All experiences are merely conditioned states. Though not through not understanding, we take them to be real, when in fact, they are just transient. Do not seek after them. Turn your attention to consciousness itself and become a witness to this truth. When the true nature of consciousness is seen, then you can stop. You can put all things down and rest. There's nothing more to do than this. It's like this invitation to just rest. Drop the load. Then we have Tara Brock. When we are free of mental concepts and our senses are awake, the sounds, smells, images, and vibrations we experience connect us with all of life everywhere. It is not my pain, it's the earth's pain. It is not my aliveness, but simply life unfolding in intense, mysterious, and beautiful. By meeting the changing dance of sensation with radical acceptance, we discover our intrinsic belonging to this world. We are no thing, not limited to any passing experience, and everything belonging to the whole. So that is what I have to offer for our reflection this evening. Thank you so kindly for your attention and and your practice um, during that offering. I could really feel your practice during that offering, and and I don't I don't say that lightly. I teach every day of the week, so thank you. And I'm curious about what your questions are. And if you have a daily life example of how you're already either consciously or perhaps uh, unconsciously but now consciously practicing this teaching of the personal truth and the universal truth, that way it can be our um, Dharma teaching and not just from one voice. So who's feeling bold? Please. Just share a short story of that of that shift. I was recently um, visiting family in New Jersey. I was on the plane on the way back, and I had had an email exchange with my brother um, over the last few weeks um, that was a little tense, and I was reading a lot of anger into his emails, and I wasn't sure where he was at. So I was feeling a little nervous about seeing him, not quite knowing, you know, what was going on for him. And I was I was reading uh, I was reading some suttas, and I just came across a passage where. Uh, the Buddha was saying, you know, uh, sp- speaking to um, somebody who'd come to ask him about, you know, should we go to war with this kingdom? And he was kind of saying, you know, just in, in the world, you know, kings fight with kings and, you know, uncles fight with nephews and husband and wife fight and brother and brother fight and this is the way it's been for generations. You know, this is 2,600 years ago. So mm-hmm. there was just something in just getting that like, oh, brothers fight with brothers. Just like, it just sort of shifted it out of the personal into that sense of just like, oh, this isn't about me or him. It's just here's this relationship with all the complexity of a family situation and it's okay if there's tension. It's like that's just the way it is. Those, these are just the roles in this moment. Beautiful. Thank you. And if you raise your hand, you don't need to come up front if that makes you shy. We can just pass the mic as people want to share or ask. There's somebody over here. Thank you. Um, When you were talking about impermanence and and, um, transient like kind of thoughts and, and things that um, happen in our lives. Um, the first thing that came to my mind was the feeling I get when I listen to music. Mm-hmm. Um, I listen to um, mostly electronic music that has no words mm-hmm. for the reason that when I listen to words, I get attachments. And um, 
I like, I like music with words, but I like music without words because it lets my mind create the visions. And when, one experience that I had recently with a band that I went to see, um, they, you know, they have a, a record they had just made, and it's, you know, it's online, and I could listen to it. And it was recorded in the studio, so they heard it first, you know, and they've heard it probably a million times, and lots of other people have heard it. So it wasn't like something new, but like when I first heard it, I was just so moved by it, and I was like, wow, you know, and it didn't seem impermanent. It seemed, you know, like, that, well, it seemed like this just like amazing situation, you know, and, but when I went <laughs> to see them live, um, I felt in, at that moment in the here and now, because at, at that moment I realized that um, I was hearing a performer play music from the mind and the heart and the skills, you know, coming directly out of a speaker to a community of people. And that was a situation that was happening just now, just at that moment. Right, in real time. In real time. In real time. Yeah, it wasn't in iTunes. Right, you know? right. And, and it um, affected me, you know. It affected me in a, um, in a really positive way. And so it made me kind of look at the way that I experience music. Um, Thank you. Thank you. That, that's actually a great inquiry question. It's a, it's a great metaphor, you know, to, to actually ask ourselves, am I experiencing the person in front of me in real time? Or have I created a prior recording that I am playing back in perception in this moment I don't even see actually the real-time person in front of me, or the real-time situation, because I've been in this situation so many times before. It's a great metaphor. Yeah, thanks. Who else? Well, I don't, I, I'm debating whether this counts, but it keeps coming back to my mind, which is, uh, I don't know how many of us watched uh, Michelle Obama and Bill Clinton give their talks last night. Mm. And there was a way in which they were both doing that, uh, going from the very personal and the very specific mm -hmm. and the very detailed to the, to the universal. Mm -hmm. And we could say the universal was, you know, political hogwash, but, but you could see that it was... It was moving people. The crowd was being really energized by that mm -hmm. back and forth play from the personal to the universal, and and it was it was driving something that drives the country in a way that yeah. you know we believe in these higher truths and we want to get there with these uh, specific strategies. Yeah. So something yeah. about that. No, I love that. You, I love that you're bringing in. You know, that perspective, and especially the piece about the fact that you notice that it's energizing to move back and forth. Because when I think about it, when we get caught in kind of, you know, the view of emptiness or, or the universal view only, and we get frozen in that, it can get a little vague. And it can actually lose energy. You know, if we get caught in just the personal, it can get so fixated and compelling that it's stressful. But when we can naturally flow back and forth as is appropriate, there's so much energy. And that's what I'm talking about. That's the energy through which we can share our expression of understanding and wise action in a million different ways. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah. There's somebody over here. I was just home in Minnesota visiting my family for the long weekend, and there was something sort of family, right? But there was something in the mundane rather than in the tension that was really universal. And so I kept trying to explore, like, what is relationship? And there were moments where we'd be sitting at the table and sort of discussing whether or not we should roll our corn from the Midwest, right? So 
whether we should roll the corn in the big, beautiful, fresh slab of butter, or if you should have a knife and like, slather <laughs> it on the corn separately. And, but it, it's just those, those moments. It's like really banal moments. There's nothing in it, or you're just sitting and listening to the crickets, or you're asking someone if they want tea, or you're cutting the watermelon. It's, there was so much in it that was just completely sort of benign in a way, and it was... I don't know how to say it, but there was a moment where it's my family, but it was also anyone's family or any relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was, it was, there was something in the, yeah. the simplicity of it and the in-betweens that was the connection between yeah. the two. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I mean, what, you're, what you're describing is, is, is an actual story of, of this thing about foreground and background. It's like they came to balance the personal and the universal, and it has a certain feeling to it. It's a felt sense. If we can recognize that and, and then recognize it repeatedly, it starts to develop. Uh, and in a way, this could be one interpretation of, of many of what the Buddha was encouraging us, saying, my friends, there are these two extremes that ought to be avoided by one who's gone forth in the spiritual life. Please find the middle way. You know, find that balance. And this is the two truths version of that balance. And it has a, a feeling. And I could actually feel it when you told the story. Like that, there was a moment when you told that story. So thank you. One more person. These things that you're saying um, about family and your brother and and so on, um, this is what it's making me think of um, when you asked us about different ways that we see ourselves. The thing that was in my mind, I didn't say it, but um, what I was thinking was as a reader. (laughs) And I read a lot. And what puzzles me sometimes is how much I can enjoy a book, but sometimes it doesn't... If if you said, like, what book did you read last week? You know, do you have any recommendations? Like, oh, you know, I'd have to go back and look at my library slip or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of it just doesn't really stick in my mind, but there's this one scene that is so vivid, and it is, in my mind, it's kind of like an example of that saying, sometimes this is like about young parents, um, the days are long, but the years are short, Mm -hmm. and how quickly time can go by. And it's a scene about... Um, a family where the mother and like one or two of her sisters they just like all their time they spent every weekend um, just sitting around their kitchen table playing pinochle and you know so it was just this family that grew up with you know the, the kitchen table the just everybody sitting around it was just these women in their house dresses and, uh, and then when one of them I guess the older sister passed away, and the family was getting ready to bury her. They buried her in, like, her favorite house dress and holding the best hand of pinochle, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that she'd ever played. Mm. Mm. And that, to me, sort of seems like a... um, like I said, it's just it's a very vivid description of that sort of merging of the the personal and the universal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that story. It's a good note to end the conversation on too, so you can feel in the room. It's like, One of the reasons I really like this topic is because there's something about it that seems to encourage us to share our stories. You know, instead of somebody having the knowledge and somebody else asking the question, there's plenty of time for that. But there's just the sharing that we do on the Dhamma path that this topic seems to uh, elicit. So thank you for your sharing and, and for your life experience and wisdom. We'll take a moment here at the end to dedicate the merit 
the goodness of our spiritual path in this time. So maybe as we breathe in and feel our own heart center for a moment, not missing the opportunity to appreciate the intention and the effort and the caring that it takes to show up here. Whether it's show up um, at our community nights or whether it's show up here in this moment. Really appreciating that. The courage the compassion that it takes to do that. And then we could start to notice the exhale, and as we notice our next number of exhales, just starting to breathe out whatever wholesome, helpful qualities we feel like we've cultivated in this practice, knowing that we all share this breath. So breathing them out with our intentions for them to spread. All the mindfulness, all the caring, the kindness, the patience, whatever it is for you. And taking great delight in the fact that not just are we sending the goodness of our hearts and our practice with our intentions, but that we'll also be sending that out with future words and actions. We couldn't possibly not share the goodness of our practice in widening circles. And they need not know that it's being shared. You know? That's what we do. That's who we are as a people. So in sending this intention out directly, both in our thoughts and our future words and actions, this deep wish that all beings might have happiness and the causes for happiness. Peace and the causes for peace. And that all beings might experience freedom in its myriad faces and forms and be supported by conditions for increasing freedom in the future. May it be so. Thank you so much for your practice and the work that you're doing in the world to manifest that practice. And I'll come back and visit as soon as I can. Thank you for your welcome. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.